0: As we remain standing, let's uh, just pray, shall we? So, Lord, we pray that you would speak. Sink your truth deep within our hearts as we listen to your word this evening. May our hearts not be over the word, but under it. May we seek to listen and obey. Amen. You'll need uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 2, open in front of you. It's on page 1196. There was a, there was a family who had had a, an au pair working with them, and staying with them for a number of years. She was a fantastic au pair, the best they'd ever had. One day, the husband had to break the bad news to his wife. The, uh, the au pair's leaving us. The wife was so upset, she said, Why? Why is she leaving us? We've treated her exactly like family. The oldest son pipes up, That's why she's leaving us. Quarrelling <laughs> always seems to be part of everyday family life, doesn't it? And, and the church is no different. Perhaps you've heard of custard Christians always getting an upset, always getting upset over trifles. But it doesn't need, does it, external opposition to the church to shoot ourselves in the foot. Almost all the opposition that Paul talks about in his letters is internal opposition within the church. It comes from other Christians. We're quite capable of loading that pistol and pointing it downwards for ourselves. So why is that? Why does the church get so involved in quarreling and squabbles? Well, Paul knew that he had to do something about it in order to secure the future of the church. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't start a program or run a course or send a handbook through. No, what he does is he reminds Timothy, the leader of that church, of where his focus should be. So look in verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, keep reminding them, that's the church, of these things. What things? Well, the grammar looks backwards rather than forwards. To so look back to verse 8 where Paul says remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead descended from David this is my gospel for which I am suffering. So Paul says remind them remind the church about Jesus. He's the Christ he's the Messiah he's risen from the dead in fulfillment of the law and the prophets he fulfills the promises made to David this is my gospel and that's Is to be our gospel too. So does everything we say and do bring us back to Jesus? Is Jesus the head of our church, the bride, the the husband to the bride, which is the church? You see, Paul knows that there are many who get excited about all sorts of things within the church. Perhaps you want to have a look back at chapter 1 of the first letter to Timothy. It's just a few pages back. chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul tells Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith, he says. So how can can Timothy keep the focus on Jesus? Well, not by devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Take a look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy and verse 13. Paul tells Timothy, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's uh, the Old Testament Paul meant by that. To preaching and to teaching. But it's not just the Old Testament, because if you come forward again to 2 Timothy, and chapter 1, and verse 13... Paul says, What you heard from me, keep us the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 2 and verse 2 on the same page, he says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be also qualified to teach others. So you see, Paul's view is that the focus should be on Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And that focus is to be found throughout the Old Testament, the Scriptures. Otherwise, he would not have been the Christ of Israel or indeed the descendant of David. But he's also found in Paul's own teaching. And the eyewitness reports of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, which would have been circulating among the Christian communities at that time. And which we now call our New Testament. So what's the first step in ensuring that a church does not fall into quarrelling and fall apart because of it? It's to remind Timothy that the Gospel is about Jesus. And his authority to speak about Jesus comes entirely from the Bible. Both the long bit at the front and the short bit at the back. So that's fairly straightforward. But there's a problem. There's a problem. When I was at university, the first time around, I had a friend called Stuart, who appeared to be a really good Christian. In his second year, he joined the CU Executive Committee and he did the uh, job that Chris Hall now does. He was the outreach coordinator, or the mission sector, as we used to call it. But he was a member of a church which taught him to expect many, many things. In his final year, he became very disillusioned, eventually got sick, and then he dropped out of uni and he dropped out of faith. His expectations of God weren't met. Another friend of mine met him years later, and sadly Stuart told that friend that his faith had just been an illusion. It wasn't real at all. So you see, here's the problem. The problem is that Timothy could turn out to be just like Stuart. In fact, all of us who teach in the church whether it's out front here, or in small groups, or with the children's group, or with students, could so easily be led astray. And to avoid this problem, Paul here in this passage gives us three pieces of advice in verses 14 through to 26. But in a very unevangelical way, I can only give you one today, because we don't have time for the second and third. But they will come next week, so don't worry, they'll be there. So the point for today is avoid ungodly teaching. You see, Timothy may have been the appointed leader of the church in Ephesus, but he wasn't the only leader around. There are other people there who have their own ideas, their own theories, their own philosophies. And in verse 14, Paul tells Timothy to warn those people before God against quarrelling about words. You see, it seems that these were the same people who came up in the verse that we read earlier on, in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 3. Who were teaching these false doctrines and devoting themselves to the myths and endless genealogies? You see, they were into these long lists of names and numbers and predictions of the future. They loved to speculate and make high-sounding, convoluted theories about all the things that weren't made clear in the scripture and apostolic teaching. They loved to guess what might or might not happen. So they might have talked about the end times, about the millennium, maybe, about prophecy without foundation. It's all sorts of fascinating stuff that we might like to read on a rainy Sunday afternoon. But it's not always very useful or even very edifying. You see, in a sense, these people were trying to fill in the gaps which they thought that God had left in the Scriptures. But we now have a doctrine which we call the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's there to remind us that there are no gaps in the Bible. When things are not clear, God means that they should be unclear we're not supposed to know certain things for certain and we really should stop trying you see if we do if we keep on trying to fill in those supposed gaps it's simply what paul calls in verse 16 godless chatter it's talk without god it's based on human invention not on god's word in verse 17 two of those godless chatterers are mentioned himenaeus and Philetus. You see, we met him and heirs before in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he is said to have rejected faith and a good conscience. But here in verse 17, we learn a bit more about what he may have believed. Verse 17 says, they say that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, of course, in one sense, the resurrection has already taken place. Jesus is raised, and in, in in another sense, all believers are raised with him our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth, even though we continue to live on earth. And if we fail to believe that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our faith is worthless, useless. But we're still waiting for that day when we are raised bodily to a new heaven and a new earth. Only then will we know the full results of the resurrection. Until then, we live in a state of now- but not yet. We have eternal life, present tense, but we must wait for the full impact of that on our lives. You see, these people are saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, there's two ways you can arrive at a false view of the resurrection. And it's not particularly clear from this passage which way these particular people went. So some, like liberal theologians of today, deny that there will be a physical resurrection they want to make it a spiritual thing and make salvation an entirely earthly affair. So we're saved by knowing God here and now. Our resurrection is symbolic of our baptism and new life in Jesus. But we can't be sure about this eternal life thing, about resurrection in a physical sense. Others go the other way and believe that everything that we will have then is available to us now. And we should expect miracles and prophetic insights, good health and even prosperity as the normal Christian experience. Future resurrection? No, name it and claim it for now. For today, they say. But what quite often happens is that people who absorb that kind of teaching soon discover that life isn't quite like that. We don't get healed. We make mistakes. Sin still encroaches in upon us. Life sucks sometimes. And then they begin to wonder whether it really was true or whether it's just an illusion. You see, it's not just in Timothy's days that false teachers have destroyed the faith of some, they do it today. False teachers destroy the faith of people like my friend Stuart. So it's no surprising then that Paul is scathing about the results of this teaching. He says it spreads like gangrene in verse 17, gradually killing off the body of Christ. In verse 16, those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Literally, they make progress towards losing God, make progress towards becoming ungodly. Verse 14 says this teaching is of no value. It is useless. It ruins those who listen to it. False teaching always has a cost, and the cost very often is division in the church. Instead of being a united body full of people fulfilling our role in an, equal, in an equal but different way, the church becomes a train of first and second class carriages. And some of us will always be second class because we haven't had that experience or this experience or because we don't share a view on that secondary issue or the other secondary issue, whatever that might be. All of this is quite the opposite of edification. What is going to build up the church? Well, clearly not ungodly teaching. So how do we fight this ungodly teaching? Well, firstly, let's return for a moment to verse 14, where Timothy is told to keep reminding, keep reminding the church of these things. You see, the truth remains the same. In the world of the Christian message, there is nothing new under the sun. Some people say, if it's new, it isn't true. If it's true, it isn't new. So many of the current fans in evangelical churches are based on books and teachings written in the last 20 or 30 years. The bells and vestments used in other churches today are largely Victorian inventions. They're not historical or traditional at all. And if you think about back to the Reformation of the 16th century. What was that all about? It was an attempt to move away from the new things, the recent things. Some of those new things included the selling of salvation by uh, money-hungry bishops, the mediation of forgiveness by power-hungry priests, and the adoration of Mary and the saints by a largely untaught people. They knew nothing better. What the Reformation did was it urged people to return to what was old, And that's why they published the scripture. I think 400 years ago, King James was published in English in this country. Is that right? Next year? year. (laughs) So that people could understand the scriptures in their own language. So they could judge for themselves what the scriptures said. They didn't need the priest interpreting a Latin text to them. And they could see that salvation was by faith alone. So, we need to keep reminding the church of these things. Secondly, Timothy is told to be a hard worker. Verse 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So how can we avoid going astray? Well, if any of you are any kind of Christian teacher, then your job is hard work. Your role is to be a workman who does their best and is not ashamed of what they do. It takes time and effort to handle the word of truth correctly. The phrase here literally means, where it says correctly handle the truth, it literally means to cut straight, to cut straight to the truth. It's the kind of verb that you'd use in motorway construction. So you don't make a narrow road that goes around hills and up and down valleys. You simply cut straight through so that it's easy for people to find their way and to get to their destination safely. But that kind of construction, the construction of a motorway, is hard work because you have to cut through the hills, you have to make tunnels, you have to build bridges to go over the valleys. And in the same way, the teacher has to do all the hard work. He has to plow through the books, the grammatical structure of text, looking at the historical context, working out what the writer meant when he wrote 2,000 years ago or even more. Before they even attempt, to try and work out what the text means for us today. Now, all of this hard work is not meant to be impressive. You see, every week we have to come back and we have to fight off that temptation to use this space, this pulpit, to show off how much learning we have. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story. He tells the story of a woman listening to this enormously intellectual, enormously clever preacher, quite unlike me. When asked... If she enjoyed the sermon, this woman replied, far be it from me to presume to understand such a great man as that. Spurgeon famously said once that some preachers think in smoke and preach in a cloud. You see, in a way, studying the text is easy bit. It's distilling all that study and trying to preach it clearly so that you can all hear it and understand it, which makes it hard work. But nor can you ignore that study. That study is essential to going into preparing a sermon or a talk or whatever it may be. At one of these uh, uh, conferences, I have to go on with my fellow curates. So I, sat, I sat next to this chap. He was a, he's another curate in another church in Norfolk. And uh, during lunch, halfway through his baked potato, he uh, suddenly uh, uh, got his pen out and started writing on the paper serviette next to him. After about 10 minutes of muttering to himself, he said, thanks for that. Something you said gave me an idea, and that's my sermon sorted out for tomorrow. I wish it could work like that for me. No, I don't, actually. Another curate I heard about recently had actually prepared a sermon, but in the five minutes he was due uh, before he was due to come and stand up here and, and preach, it wasn't here, it was somewhere else, <laughs> um, he decided uh, actually God had something else to say to the congregation that morning. So he ripped off his notes and spoke. Off the top of his head. You see, these guys, they remind me of the story about a pastor who never prepared during the week, but every week, whilst the hymns were being sung, sat on the platform and desperately cried to God, Lord, give me your message, give me your message for these people today. And then one Sunday, whilst desperately praying for God's message, God did answer him and he said, Here's my message, you're lazy. see, whatever these people are doing, it's, it's not preaching. It's not bringing the word of God. And that means it's going to miss the target. That's what Paul means when he says that him and Aeus and Philetus have wandered away from the truth. Literally, it's an illustration taken from archery. It means missing that yellow circle we were all trying to hit on the men's day the other day. Missing the circle in the middle and wandering away from there. To bring that up to date is like a haberlini. I have a Havilani football, which swerves away at the last moment. John Stott compared such preachers to Chinese jugglers. He said this, One juggler stood against the wall and the other threw knives at him. You've seen it happen. They hit above his head, close by his ear, under his armpit, between his fingers. They could throw within a hair's breadth and never strike the man on the other side of the room. Thankfully, these Chinese jugglers missed their target But ironically, preachers who truly love their congregations aim to hit them straight in the heart with their knives, perfectly on target every week with the word of God straight in the heart. You see, God's word is always relevant to us. God's word is always relevant to us. But preachers actually have to work hard to make sure that it appears relevant to you as you head out to your life at work or to an evening with your non-believing partner or whatever it may be. True biblical teaching is hard work. All of us who teach must do our best if we're not to feel ashamed before the Lord our God. Indeed, we should, we should present ourselves to God as one approved, literally as one who has passed the test. As James chapter 3 in verse 1 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's an awesome responsibility to stand here. If you're not a teacher, you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me, none of that applies to me. Well, wrong. Because you also need to be workers. You see, your role is to listen hard. You've got to be discerning, They say that the way to recognise a forged banknote is to handle hundreds and hundreds of genuine banknotes so that when the forged banknote comes along you can immediately feel it's not quite right or you can see there's something quite not there, not quite right in the banknote. And we need to be like that when we're listening to the word of God. So does what we hear on a Sunday evening stack up with what we read for ourselves during the week? Is what we're listening to the same truth that we heard the week before? and the week before that, and the week before that. Not in in the sense that it's boring, because we're just repeating ourselves, but because correctly taught, the word of God is never boring, and it's part of our job to make it interesting and memorable. But it might be, sometimes, that the preachers allow themselves to become bored themselves. So they start looking for an unusual sense in the text, the slightly different take on a passage, a new angle on something that we all thought was straightforward. So listen hard. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. So you need to listen hard. But you also need to support your preachers and encourage them. There's not just nice words at the door, which is always very nice, but more than that. We need to give them the time to do the job properly. No workman can produce a masterpiece in the day. And most of all, you need to pray for your preachers. As I say if you want a better preacher then you pray for the ones that you've already got. So how do we fight ungodly teaching Well, we keep returning to the gospel and we are workers who do our best. Thirdly and in case all of you are a bit worried now and you think there's a little bit too uncertain if sound teaching and the future of the church depends on people like me or Phil Cortier, or Lindsay and Cypher, or Weber and Pathfinders, or Matt and Rachel in the small group, or whoever it may be. Well, you're right. It doesn't all depend on us, because it depends also on the grace of God. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, God's solid salvation, foundation, stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those are his who are his. You see, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. The church will always be a mixed body, made up of sound teachers and false teachers, Christians and non-Christians, those who live out their faith and those who do not. It was ever thus, as I say, and ever will be, the wheat and the tares together. That's what the visible church, that's us, and other churches around consists of. But we're not to worry, because it is built on God's solid foundation, which will stand firm. Out of all this melee of people in here, in the church, the Lord knows those who are his. And if he knows us, then he will certainly take care of us. He will not let his church fail. At a recent discussion I was involved in with a number of evangelical leaders from around this region, there was some depressing talk about the difficulty in finding young leaders to come and train in our churches, of, as Beth and Mike are doing this year and then someone said well perhaps we don't have to worry about this because actually God has got thousands of leaders lining up they just happen to be in Africa in those growing churches in Africa, they love the Lord and they submit to the word of God and all we have to do is be humble enough to recognise that actually we need their help here in the rest and perhaps we need to provide the financial resources so that their churches can be led effectively and, and some of them can come over here and help us out. You know, there's more South American missionaries in Spain than Spanish missionaries in South America. Who knows? But God's solid foundation will never fail. Notice, though, the second half of verse 19 before we finish. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. You see, although we can trust in God's foundation... It will never fail us. We cannot presume on his grace. We must do our part and turn away from wickedness. It's a theme we're going to return to next week when we look at verses 20 to 26. But for now we just need to say that no teacher should assume that just because they study the word and they teach others that they're not immune from keeping poor company or falling into immorality. We must all turn from our wickedness. So in summary, if you are a teacher of any kind, then work hard. Do your best. Don't be ashamed. Handle the word of God correctly. If you are a listener, then listen hard. Support your teachers and above all, pray for them so that neither your teachers nor you may be led astray by quarrelling with words. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us the text. You've given us your words. You've given us the Old Testament and the New Testament that point us to Jesus. Lord, when the preachers and the teachers in this church, wherever they may be, whoever they may be, teach your word, may they do it faithfully. May they handle your word correctly. Make us all good listeners and supportive and help us all to pray for the teachers every week. In the name of Christ, amen.